This is episode number 236, The Female Cyclist Who Is Changing the Sport, with Catherine Bertine. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spending the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I think it's really important that people know that within us can coexist sensitivity and insecurities, but also strength and power. And I do have some self-belief that, yeah, you know what? We are all capable of creating change. I think each and every one of us has the ability to rally the troops, to call out change, to make things happen. And I'm proof of that because I'm not famous. I'm not wealthy. I'm not a politician or a celebrity Instagrammer. But if I was able to affect change at the Tour de France, then anybody can create change and make something happen. Welcome, welcome, friends. And I'm so thankful that you are here today and that you are part of our mission to be better every day. Living a high performance life and helping others do the same is my mission. And what does a high-performance life mean to me? I've thought about this a lot, and my definition has slightly changed over the years. But for me, a high-performance life is doing a lot of internal work through the vehicle of challenges, whether it be in sport or in business, to know and work on myself, my thoughts, my actions, my focus, and my attitude. I define success or high-performance by committing to a process of growth and improvement where I show up every day and do my best. And my best one day may be different than my best on another day due to life's many inputs. The mindset of high performance is about commitment, learning, right effort, personal accountability, humbleness, optimism, and gratitude. The lifestyle of high performance is treating your body well with physical training, a mindfulness practice, eating healthy, and sleeping. And that is how I define high performance for myself today. And I encourage you to ask yourself this question. How do you define high performance in your life? And how can you continue to encourage that? If you're brand new to the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you enjoy this, don't forget to rate, review, and also, again, subscribe to the show. That helps others find it. And podcasting is such a fun thing to do. And if it brings value to you, make sure you share it with your friends because it'll help bring value to them, too. And I want to give a huge, great big thank you to those of you who are financially backing this show. This show is something that I do at a professional level with an audio engineer, and I want to make sure that it's the best and the best it can be. And the donations you guys have made through Patreon and PayPal have been massive and helpful in every single way. I've been investing in the show since episode one, and now we're at episode 236, and it really is a great opportunity, and I believe in it so, so much. You can find those links at sonyalooney.com slash podcasts to donate on Patreon or PayPal. Thank you so, so much. All right, let's talk about today's brave and inspiring guest, Catherine Bertine. She is a retired professional cyclist. She is an activist for equity in women's pro cycling, author of four books and a documentary filmmaker. You might have heard of the film a few years ago called Half the Road, which chronicles the inequality of women's cycling That is also a metaphor for life. And I remember when I saw this film and it was really powerful for me. With Half the Road, Catherine noticed that the women's road races were often shorter than the men's events. Prize money was either non-existent or pitifully lower. And the female pros had no base salary nor any sort of union to protect their best interests. And the governing body of the sport treated the female racers like second-class citizens. Catherine couldn't help but wonder why this was so, and her voice as an activist got louder. Things have improved since Half the Road came out in 2014, but we still have a long way to go. I've been racing mountain bikes at the professional level since 2006, and I can personally say that there have been a lot of really positive changes in the sport for women. When I first started racing, or when I first started racing professionally, there would be races where men would have payout and women would have no payout. There were races where the payout would be dramatically different and much, much lower for females, and there would be almost no opportunity for females. And things are getting better, but I think we have a long way to go in the realm of sponsorships. Races have done an incredible job stepping up to the plate, 
But it still seems like there is a lot of inequity when it comes to sponsorship opportunity and sponsorship dollars for women. I digress. Back to Catherine. The powers that be of professional cycling continue to reject and shun her, especially when she started asking really big questions. But it didn't stop her from becoming a pro cyclist at the age of 37. That's right, folks. She did not become a professional cyclist until the age of 37. So if you're out there saying, I'm too old to get started, I'm washed up, this woman became her first professional year was at age 37. So it's never too late. Don't count yourself short. She raced for five years on the pro circuit with four UCI domestic and world tour teams, and she retired from racing in 2017. But she still remains active in advancing equity for women's pro cycling and is doing so much. Catherine also started the social activism group, La Tour Entier, to bring parity to women's professional road cycling, starting with the Tour de France. Yes, a female Tour de France. She and her team succeeded, and the women's field was included in 2014 with the addition of La Course by Tour de France. She is the author of four books, with her newest book, Stand, Just Hitting Bookstores. Stand is Catherine Bertine's memoir on activism, a manual for progress, and what really happens behind closed doors in her life while making big changes and being an activist. Change and social activism don't come easy, and they come at a price. With unabashed honesty, humor, and authenticity, Catherine lets you in behind the scenes as she wrestled with the question, is the journey worth the struggle? As you can see, Catherine has made huge waves for professional cycling, and she's not done yet. We got into some really interesting topics in this podcast, having the confidence to speak your mind. We talked about the current state of inequity in women's professional cycling and the making of Half the Road. We talked about how to have more self-belief because it seems like to be an activist, you have to have a lot of self-belief. We talked about vulnerability because in her book, she got really real and really vulnerable. We have some actionable takeaways on how to be an activist and how to make change. And a lot of us think, oh, I can't make change. But Catherine says that anybody can make change in this world. And speaking of change, change can also come from within. We have the power to change ourselves, be it our mind or our health. We have a lot of agency if we have the courage to take a step in that direction. Knowing what tools to use is step one. And for your health, I recommend checking out Inside Tracker. And you might have heard them before on the podcast. We've actually recorded a podcast episode with Jonathan Levitt, who works at Inside Tracker and is an accomplished and incredible runner. But Inside Tracker is a company that uses blood work to assess biomarkers, athletic performance, and nutrition software to optimize fitness and longevity. And I've been working with this company for many, many years because I think it's really helpful to have not only a baseline for where you are as an athlete, but to see how you progress and to see how lots of different inputs affect your body. And when you get your results back, you will get an individualized plan of how you can use lifestyle factors to improve some of these biomarkers to improve your performance. And they make recommendations like maybe doing meditation or mindfulness practice or different foods that you can eat to boost your testosterone or improve your cholesterol or improve your fasting glucose. And those are just a few of the many, many biomarkers that you can look at. More recently, they have added a goal of being able to look at gut health. And what I mean by goal is that whenever you get one of these tests, you can actually select what you want your ultimate outcome to be based on the work that you want to do. So you can select things like better heart health, better recovery, become a better endurance athlete, improve my gut health. And it uses specific algorithms to look at those different levels in your blood and make those recommendations so that you have the power to improve it. And then you can recheck it. If you want to give it a try, go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% all tests. And that's insidetracker.com slash Sonia to get 25% off all tests. And if you do it, I'd love to hear how it goes for you. It's been really empowering for me. And I can't wait to hear what you think too. So I'm, I'm super excited to get to chat with you because I learned a lot more about you after doing some research for today's podcast. And you're quite the go-getter. <laughs> Thank you. That's kind of you. I like the term go-getter. I'm sure others would use different language like, uh, you know, professional annoyance, um, <laughs> you know, something in that category. I'm sure I have irked plenty of people on the 
opposing side when it comes to, uh, you know, trying to fight for change and that stuff. So I appreciate the term go-getter. That's very nice of you. (laughs) Well, I think that is just true. And whenever you're making big change in the world, man, like many of us haven't been in your shoes before and been sort of on the receiving end of lots of difficult conversations, maybe being excluded. And yeah, I, I'm so thankful for all the work that you've done for women cycling. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you. And it, uh, it definitely helps alleviate some of those, those demons, you know, that uh, were part of the earlier side of this journey where exclusion was, was part of the game, unfortunately. So it's so nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a, professional cyclist and I run my own program and I have done so for many, many years. And it's tough being a woman even now. I mean, it's gotten so, so much better. I've been racing since 2003, but just trying to be treated and have opportunities and, you know, women, I think we have to work so much harder than men. And then we still just don't have the same opportunity level. And that's really hard. So getting to see that you're not alone, but also that there's people like you doing really great work in order to bring these opportunities for women is just, just, it's awesome. Oh, thank you. There's, uh, there are still definitely more opportunities out there that need to be to, to women. And uh, it's surprising how many girls we still have in this day and age. Yeah. It takes all chipping away at the block a little bit and, and it's to connect with. And like you, who are that happened. So thank you for doing what you're doing. So I'm trying to figure out, there's just so many different things we could talk about where we want to start. But I guess the first question I want to ask you is, what's given you the confidence to make these waves and to continue to evolve as a person? Ah, great question. I do think that, you know, there's probably something in me that's just hardwired to want to fix things. I've had this, you know, since I was a little kid. And if something is broken, my first question is, okay, well, why is it broken? You know, and if there's an actual reason, like, well, a dish fell on the floor, therefore it's broken, (laughs) you know, then okay, that makes sense. But when we ask those types of questions of why are things broken when it comes to gender equity, the answer usually doesn't make any sense because there is no correct answer as for why something is broken. And that's what really flipped the switch for me, so to speak, was looking for an answer as to why things are broken. And when I couldn't find one, I knew that my my gut was telling me, well, okay, find out why it's broken and then let's fix this um, problem or find the solution. Kind of what made me feel like this was the path I, I wanted to take. As for where that comes from, that's really hard to say. Maybe part of that is hardwired and maybe part of that is just stuff that we we learn along the way in life. And maybe that's part of what drove me into journalism too, which is where you ask that question, why, 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 yeah. <laughs> all the time. So those are, those are a little bit. And I think with the second part of your question, what motivates me or what keeps me on that path, I can tell you this, I, I am equally motivated by the amount of support that I get in looking for an answer, but I'm, but also the, the antagonist approach of when people are not supportive or when people have pushback, that also motivates me. And I almost had to choose that as a motivator because sure enough, you know, in life, there are a lot of people who are going to say, no, you can't do this or no, no, no time. And you can either look at that roadblock as something that's really discouraging, or you can use it as motivation to be like, no, let's make sure that we change that no to something that will be an open door toward a yeah. So yeah, I got a lot, I've had lots of pushback. (laughs) And you've chosen to use that pushback as a keyhole for overcoming adversity and to use it as motivation to overcome challenges. And that's, that's hard to do. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel that it was almost like it got to the point where it had to be a necessary thing to do. Otherwise, I would have thrown in the towel or given up and just been completely discouraged, you know. And that stuff makes you feel really alone too. I think when we when we have those struggles in life, we tend to feel like, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one who's feeling this way or hitting these roadblocks. 
And so another tactic that, you know, definitely helped me. And I don't know that it was even a tactic at the time, but it was asking other athletes, specifically our sisterhood of cycling, like, Hey, do you feel this way too? And the more people that would say things like, yeah, it's, it's crazy that we don't have this opportunity or we're not being paid the same, or, you know, all of the issues that we have in cycling when others also confided in me that it's something that they want to see change too, that helped me kind of, uh, you know, get a little bit more, you know, more focused on, okay, I'm not alone. Let's fix this together. So there might be people listening that are unfamiliar with the state of, I guess, the financial state of cycling and the opportunities for women. Can you bring us up to speed on what the current practices are and where they were maybe when you got started on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, whether or not we're talking about cycling, all things that should not be in any area of life. Going back to cycling, when I first got into the sport, the sport late, I was 30 when I first rode cycling. And back then, you know, I, as an athlete was just like any other athlete, you of course have to climb through the ranks. That makes sense. You want to be a professional cyclist, but starting, you know, at ground zero, that that's normal in all sport. And that was, I enjoyed that challenge. But what was absolutely mind boggling to me was how different cycling was than all the other sports that I played growing up. For example, running, figure skating, rowing, triathlon, all of those sports, the one thing that they shared in common was that there was always equal opportunity for women. We had the same distances. We had the same access to whatever it was, ice, water, you know, um, pavements. We had access to all of these events and races. And when I got over to cycling, I was blown away that not just at the amateur level, but also at the professional level, women were not allowed in every single race. If women were allowed, our distances were usually cut in half. At the professional level, the pay scale or the prize winnings of that particular race were totally different for men and for women. And I believe that, you know, I didn't understand. It's not that way in the other sports so that I played. Why is it like this? And again, that was like asking all those questions. And back in 2011, I knew I got really hooked on cycling. I fell deeply in love with it. And I wanted to see if I could make it to the professional level. But in 2011, I was uh, 30. I was 30. Did I, okay, sorry, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I first got on a road bike in 2007, but it was 2011 that I wanted to see if I could step it up to the pro level. So forgive me if my dates are <laughs> a little funny. But by the time it was 20, I, we got to 2011, I was 36 years old. And this rule was still in place. It was the same rule I'd been there back in 2007 as well. And the rule was this, that women's professional road cycling teams could not average over the age of 28. And I was 36. <laughs> and this was so archaic to me. I couldn't believe it. And it made no sense as to why, especially when at that point, Kristen Armstrong had been to the Olympics in her early 30s and she won a gold medal in the time trial. And then you know, as time unfolded, she would do so again for two more Olympics, a total of three gold medals putting within her 30s and early 40s. So where was this bizarre logic coming from? And the answer was, it was just this rule that had been around in cycling for a very long time, and it never got changed. So, you know, that was one example of all the other different. Luckily, in 2015, we fought to get that rule changed and lifted. And part of that fight was exposing how in and archaic it was. And finally, the UCI did change it. But how interesting that they would have kept it going, it would still be there if women didn't speak up about it. And if half the road wasn't where we could show that, you know, that those inequities still existed. And, you know, we kind of had to embarrass the UCI into changing some of these rules. And how did you get funding for half the road? Because I imagine that a lot of people or companies would be afraid to have anything to do with that? Oh, that's one of my favorite questions. So one of the best things about Half the Road was, you know, first, I originally brought this to ESPN. I was working there as an editor. And I said, hey, look, I'm not a cyclist. This was in 2012. I did get a pro contract at the um, the, the ripe old age of 37. You know, 
<laughs> and I thought, this is great for ESPN. I have a pro contract. I now have access to all these incredible women and the, the majority of these amazing UCI races. So what a great opportunity for me to to film a documentary on half the, on on women's pro cycling on all the positive elements and all the elements that need work. And I brought it to ESPN and they turned it down and say, citing, well, you know, women's cycling, nobody watches that. And I said, well, hang on. People can't watch what they can't see. You know, <laughs> I didn't major in economics, but that seemed like a pretty clear staple of supply and demand. You know, you have to at least let people know what's out there before you can create the demand. You actually have to produce the supply. <laughs> and the fact that ESPN kind of shut it down saying, well, nobody watches it, rather than taking that onus of being like, oh, but we could put it out there so people can watch it. You know, that's on their radar. So I thought, okay, fine, I'm going to make this anyway. And I said that out loud and I said, oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> but I knew too, I had this gut feeling that because of all the cycling fans that are in this world, I knew that there was a huge fan base for the women as well as for the men. And maybe, just maybe, we can launch a crowdsource campaign to fund this film. And we did two rounds of funding. This was back in 2012 and 2013. And sure enough, we ended up putting the entire funding of Half the Road. It was all done by 16 different countries, 600 donors, and an equal split between men and women who donated for this film, which I think is really, really telling. You know, it gave proof that a cycling fan is a cycling fan. They don't, you know, the real fans, they're not going to care if it's if it's men or women. They're going to care about the racing. And Sonia, as you and I know, women at the top level of this sport are so incredible to watch. There really is no difference between the men and women, although sometimes a lot of people will say that the women's races are more exciting. Many of the women's races are still shorter, but that creates for a more exciting event sometimes. So anyway, back to the crowdsourcing. Yeah, we, we were able to finance the entire film because other people stepped up to the plate. And that was a huge reckoning for us. And to this day, I still receive royalties. I can't say they're huge <laughs> because we're now seven years later. But imagine that you can rent Half the Road online for $2.99. And the fact that I'm still making royalties because people are still downloading a film about women cycling is a huge telling point that the subject matter is still relevant and people want to be part of the solution in fixing the inequity. So I heard you say a couple of different things. You said that you you were a professional figure skater. Is that correct? Growing up? That is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you were like, yes. Figure skating, you mentioned all these different sports. And then you said, well, cycling was different and the opportunity seemed different or and is different for women. But you also said that there was something about cycling that just really grabbed you, that made you want to be able to become a professional. What was that thing? I think there are two answers to that. Physically, I can say that after years of skating and rowing, two sports actually develop quite strong quadriceps on anyone, male or female. <laughs> it's a big dominant leg sport, right? I got into triathlon of the three disciplines of swimming, cycling, and running. I was stronger in cycling. And so that's kind of where my I started to gravitate toward, uh, you know, toward the bike. I just had more of a natural strength from all those other sports. So that part was awesome for me to be like, okay, I love the, I love the physical aspect of riding. But I think the emotional side of it, too, and the fact that technically this this sport that men and women have equal access to. And in many ways, we have the equal ability to go and buy a bicycle. You know, men and women are equally able to do that. And I think that something that, um, you know, it should be that way in all sports, of course, this disconnect to what happens, a woman not having equal access to things in cycling, that to me, there was something about that, that say, how can this be? This sport is so amazing. I love this sport. And whether or not anybody also feels the same way, that door should at least be open to be able to explore those possibilities. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think there was really something that drew me to 
wanting to fix the broken parts, you know, of the sport as, and that was equal to how much I love the actual physical aspect of riding a bicycle. And all the things that you've done, I mean, you've been a professional athlete across multiple sports and like you're an activist, you're a film director, you're, you're an author and a journalist. All of these things require a lot of self-belief, especially in atmospheres that may not be as inviting as in other places. And a lot of times there's a stereotype that women lack in self-belief. So what, mm. like what advice do you have for maybe and maybe a man is listening to this and he's like, I lack self-belief. Like what advice do you have for people who want to grab onto some of your self-belief and get some of that for themselves? Oh, that's a great question. I should start by saying this. I have just as many insecurities and, you know, sensitivities. That's a big thing for me. I'm incredibly sensitive and I have a lot of insecurities, just like any other human has. I talk about this in, in the book, Half, or sorry, Half the Road was the film. I talk about this in Sand, the book that's coming out. But I think it's really important that people know that within us can coexist sensitivity and insecurities, but also strength and power. And I do have some self-belief that, yeah, you know what? We are all capable of creating change. I think each and every one of us has the ability to rally the troops, to call out change, to make things happen. And I'm proof of that because I'm not famous. I'm not wealthy. I'm not a politician or a celebrity Instagrammer. But if I was able to affect change at the Tour de France, then anybody can create change and make something happen. And as for the, the insecurities and the sensitivities, I think the best thing that we can do is acknowledge that within ourselves and really take a good hard look in the mirror and be like, okay, here's where I have some issues. And you know what? That's okay. I'm human. And rather than trying to stuff those issues deep down and pretend they don't exist, my answer is like, bring your issues with you. <laughs> and um, that's what I do, you know, and once I have been able to acknowledge these issues and these insecurities, it gets a lot easier because it can be like, oh, gosh, this makes me feel sad or shitty or really bad. You know, being able to acknowledge that stuff and then say, OK, it's all right to feel that way. But now let's do something about it. You know, that's helped me. So I hope if anyone's listening, you know, that you'll feel, if anything, empowered to just, uh, you know, take that step and, and bring your demons with you. <laughs> it's OK. They can still exist and you can still do awesome things. Thanks for uh, being vulnerable and sharing that you do have, you know, insecurities and demons and doubts and that that is part of the process. And you said that your process is really viewing it as a self-compassion lens or with a self-compassion lens and just saying like, yeah, these, these things exist within me and it's okay. And these are not reasons that I shouldn't move forward, but I still just need to bring them with me. And I think a lot of people look yes. at their insecurities or their self-doubt and they think, you know, this is a reason why I shouldn't do this. Instead of realizing that right. every single person who's doing something in their life or every single person that somebody looks up to has all those same issues. Like we're all human beings, like you said, and that that's so powerful to recognize that. Oh, thank you, Sonia. I mean, I have to say that there's a lot of vulnerability that's going to be coming out in stand. It's, you know, I, I knew that if I were going to sit down and write this book about activism, that I would also have to write about the personal side, because the first time I, I started writing this book as a first draft, I remember trying to focus just on the activism side, like, here's some tips that you can do to go out and change the world. And it was a really crappy first draft. It was so bad because it read very hollow. And I think we have to remember that when we fight for change, it's usually something that means something to us. You know, for me, women's inequality, yeah, that stinks on so many levels. And I do feel very personally connected to that too. We've, you know, I think all women have experienced that at some point in their life that, yeah, it, you can't just, you know, run it to into the battlefield of change and think change the world without your own personal world changing as well. So I talk about that a lot in stand and I talk about the vulnerability I bring in my private life. I talk about divorce and depression 
and, you know, really coming down to the wire of not making it through that stuff. And that's finally what kind of enabled me to say, okay, this is the right path to take. Sharing vulnerability is really scary and it's, it's terrifying. But if I don't, then I'm writing a lie. So that was kind of the, you know, the, the decision to see. And I, I do know this. In 2016, Bicycling Magazine, they were very kind to me and they wrote an article about what it's really like to create the change, like like um, Half the Road and the Tour de France. They wanted to know, what was it like? And I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this interview, then I have to get real and vulnerable. And I did. And what was amazing was the comments that came back from strangers that said, oh my gosh, I've been through hard times too. I struggle too. And it makes me feel not so alone knowing that you also struggle with human stuff. (laughs) And I think it's actually, it was that article that made me feel like, okay, maybe I, maybe I can open up a little bit more and maybe I can write this book. But if I do have to make sure that I respect the people who have written in and say, you know, and made those kind comments, I'm going to have to follow suit and, you know, vulnerability. So yeah, it's, it's been a journey. And, you know, here we are, with that half road, that was more of an expose side. It wasn't quite as personal as stand will be. But you know, here we are with uh, with stand coming out. And I'm just as nervous at the vulnerability this time around. So I want people to know that I I don't feel immune in any way to, uh, (laughs) to vulnerability. I've been dealing with it and accepting it. Like, I'm still just as nervous and scared about putting my personal life out there than, than I was, um, you know, a few years ago, if not more so. <laughs> yeah, putting yourself out there is really hard because, especially in a situation where it's like a book or a movie or an article, because now people can reject yeah. you or people can just not be interested in you. And I, I personally have, have experienced all of these feelings because a lot of the things that I have my own personal story intermixed in it. And it's like, well, what if, what if nobody cares what I have to say? So like, how do you, how do you manage those feelings? I personally want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I almost feel like with those, it's the acknowledgement that, okay, you know what? There are going to be trolls out there. There are always going to be the type of people that look to bring others down. That's a human element. I wish we didn't have it, but it does exist, right? So I feel that there's one of the tricks that I, I use is to be ready for that. And when it happens, the best things that you can do is actually not respond to those trolls, not comment in any way, because what they want more than anything is a response. And that gives us the power over them, whether or not we choose to respond. And the best thing we can do is not respond because that gets them completely pissed off. (laughs) So, you know, those are some little tricks that I've used. Never respond to trolls and then try as hard as we can to remember that Remember all the people who do support us. And I know that's hard because you could have a hundred, you could have 99 people say, great job. I so support what you're doing. This is awesome. And then you get one person who's like, I don't like anything about you. (laughs) And some, for some reason, our brain hangs on to that one person. (laughs) And I think that's where we kind of have to, you know, metaphorically slap ourselves in the face a little bit and be like, hey, hey. You need to remember that there are 99 people out there who are on your side. And if you focus on that 1%, that one person, then that's all about your ego. So check your ego and focus on the good people and let those those trolls do their thing. So we have to call ourselves out a little bit and do a, do a double check on our ego with that. But yeah, still the vulnerability, it will always be there. <laughs> but I have a question for you, because I know that, you know, being in the public eye and putting yourself out there, you've, you've encountered pushback and that type of social media behavior. How has that been for you? Have you used techniques to curb, curb the bad ones? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get them as much as I used to, which you can read that any way you want. You could say, well, maybe you're not, you know, taking big, big enough risks because you don't have the trolls anymore. Or, you know, maybe the trolls just went away um, because I was ignoring them, like you said. So yeah, I I ignore the trolls. Or like on a YouTube video, if I see thumbs down, I actually laugh at it. And I've gotten to a place where Mm -hmm. I can 
I can have it not bother me because I just imagine someone sitting at their computer and how the ridiculousness of taking the time and energy to, to give a thumbs down. And yes. also like you get to choose, like you said, you get to choose who you want to like, what you want to focus on. And there are times where you do need to be able to sit down and take constructive criticism but most of the time, the people online are not those people that are delivering that type of constructive feedback that's going to be helpful for you. That's so smart. And that, yeah, you've got it down. <laughs> that is so true. It's amazing what you said, too, about how how much energy goes into somebody, you know, thumbs downing or writing a negative sentence. You know, you got to just think to yourself, wow, they, they must be going through some tough stuff in life using all that energy to create negativity because that takes some hard work. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good way to kind of just let it go. So let's talk about activism because to be an activist, you almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, but to be an activist, it almost seems like you can't be a people pleaser at the same time because you will say things that upset other people, but they're for a reason that is really meaningful to you. So can you give people some advice? Maybe people want to be more activists in their life and they're afraid to because they're people pleasers or they're just afraid of pushback. What advice do you have on how to be an activist? I get the people pleasers because I think I was that way growing up. And I think it got to the point and I can't give an exact time or one specific thing that changed that for me. But there was that awakening at some point, maybe it was in my, my twenties or thirties where it was just like, wait a minute, how much energy I spend caring about what other people think? What a waste of time that is. And I, I began to turn that corner away from people pleasing, because if, if we think about it, you know, how much do we really pay attention to what other people are doing with their lives if they're unhappy and if people are happy in the choices they're making and what they're doing, I, I feel like those are the people I tended to gravitate toward more. And those are rarely people pleasers. Those are people who are living their life on their terms. And maybe, you know, if you take a look around at your close circle of friends, do you have people like that? Are you gravitating toward them? And that's a good sign that it'll be easier to let go of people pleasers if we can focus on that element. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> yeah, like surrounding yourself but, with important, um, pe surrounding yourself with the right people is really important, yeah, really key. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's that's huge too. And if you do step into activism, you know, I think we also, and I hope this answers your question too. Sometimes a word like activism can evoke this picture of conflict, you know, or to be an activist, you know, I will also, I will often use the term, we stand on the front lines of change. And it does kind of create this warlike mentality, you know, this brave heart picture that comes to mind. <laughs> and that is partially true. You know, being an activist means we stand up and we fight for what we believe in. But it does not always have to be about war. In fact, if anything, the best activists that we have ever had have been all about peace. You know, we look at uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. We look at Rosa Parks. You know, these are people who took a stand or had a seat, you know, to make change happen. That Those were incredible areas of activism, but nothing that had to do with fighting. In fact, it was the opposite, right? So if people think, oh, I don't know if I'm strong enough to be an activist, I can assure you that you are certainly strong enough. If you have a belief that you believe in and that you think is the right path, then you're already on your way to being an activist and you don't have to always stand on the, on the front lines. We talk a little bit about that in Stand, being that you, we, there are all, all these different personalities out there. There are introverts and extroverts and people who just want absolutely, you know, everything to do with with um, interacting with others and, and those who don't. And wherever you are on the spectrum of how comfortable you feel putting yourself out in the public, you can still create a role for yourself that is just as important as anybody. Uh, and that for me was was how we got change done, you know, at, at um, especially at the Tour de France, the pressure group. That we brought in Latour Antier, which was myself, Mariana Vos, Emma Pooley, 
Chrissy Wellington. If you follow the world of endurance sports, I just named world champions and Olympians. And I don't have a world champion title. I'm not an Olympian. And if I was able to align with these women and be step into the role of organizer and developer in terms of some of our concepts and theories, you know, I played an equally important role to them. It just all, wasn't always in the uh, the limelight or the fame area. And that's okay. You know, it, it goes to kind of drive the point home that we all have that power to to create change at our comfort level. And I, I really, really am hoping that that message might make it across in stand so that, you know, no matter where we are or how shy we are or how vocal we are, if we've got, uh, you know, that even that tiny little seed of passion for change, we can make some pretty awesome stuff grow. Yeah. And it sounds like activism isn't about just being loud. It's about understanding. It's about empathy. And it's about listening and communication, especially with people that, that disagree with you. Because ultimately, if you're just yelling and not communicating the right way, you're not going to be able to even get into somebody else's room to talk about some of these really important things. Oh, that is so true. That is so true. And you know what? Just a couple of years ago, I had a really interesting experience with a, a yeller. <laughs> and it was, you know, we were at the tour of California and watching the women's race. And I met this woman who was a self-proclaimed activist and she was newer to the cycling side, but she, you know, she was there to watch the race. And, you know, I met her, I can't say that I, I knew her very well, but we had a great conversation about women's cycling. And she decided to use that opportunity at tour of California to go up to the press who were interviewing athletes from the women's race. And what unfortunately what she did was she started yelling at the cameraman and at the the news anchor that were doing the interview saying to them like you know why why isn't this race long enough why is it the is the prize purse different why is this and she's yelling at the anchor man and cameraman as if it were their fault hmm. rather than to assess the situation that those are actually the the people who are on our side the most any cameraman and journalist who is interviewing a women's athlete you know, they're, they're our allies. And when I, I heard that she was doing this, you know, I said, I immediately contacted her and I said, I don't know what happened. I didn't see it, but what was happening? And her response was activists act. And I, I, I heard what she said and I said, listen, activists don't act before they think, before they assess the situation before they read the room, it's not correct that activists act. Activists think that has to come first. And I think that's where you miss the mark. And we were able to have a civil discussion about what happened. But it's such a great example to say that um, it's not about uh, storming the castle. And it's not about charging forth from the front lines to be the first into battle. It's about communication and talking and learning. And that's what a real activist is and does. Yeah, I'm going to link up in the show notes for, for everyone. I interviewed this amazing, he's a meditation instructor, but also an author. And his entire, I don't want to call it business because he probably wouldn't like it being called business, but his like, <laughs> it, it, it's all about nonviolent communication. And his is about nonviolent communication from a mindfulness side. And it was so amazing because it shows you how to use mindfulness whenever you're in conflict and how to hold space for the other person. Um, so his name's Oren J. Sofer, and I'll make sure I link that in the show notes because I think communication is a really important skill and it's something that we always need to be working on. And it's it's really difficult whenever you have to communicate with people. Um, and I hear some of your stories about this when you're in the room and then there's a person in this case, probably like a man telling you, you're not good. You're not good enough. You're not valuable. Or maybe they don't even give you a response. Like I know that for myself, like with a lot of the conversations and <laughs> challenges that I've had in sponsorship land, a lot of times people just don't even respond to you. It, and, and this includes like, like, I, I don't talk about this very often, but like I have 
sponsors that have been a sponsor or were a sponsor for like a year or two and then they just stopped talking to me and we i thought we had a good relationship and they just like stopped talking to you completely and it's so incredibly disrespectful to feel unseen and these brands are brands that like pay you like that paid me for for years and then just like stopped talking to me despite yeah. like months so you know this happens a lot and being able to communicate in those situations if the opportunity presents itself is, uh, is really important, I think. Oh, Sonia, you have totally touched such a nerve on that because this concept of ghosting, right, of not responding yeah. in any type of relationship, a sponsor relationship, a personal relationship, a business relationship, it's just so wrong. It's also incredibly passive aggressive. It just creeps me out. You know, it's not hard if somebody, if you write to a sponsor, any of anyone, and that person might not be able to sponsor you, or maybe they're not interested anymore. It's so easy to say, hey, thanks for your email. We're going a different direction, or let's hop on a call and talk. It's so easy to give a response. And it's also, it's just not only professional, but it's the right thing to do as a human being to, to respond when somebody asks you a question. And this idea of ghosting, I really hope it's something that we will move past as a culture, because the more it happens, it's unfortunately very much like a virus. Uh, it'll spread. And we've seen it, you know, where rather than saying no thanks or not interested, it just doesn't get answered. And that's becoming, yeah, viral in the bad way. Yeah, it's it's really sad. And it makes you feel just so disrespected. And I think mm -hmm. even if even if the answer is no, people just want to feel like they are seen and heard. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an important thing. And yeah, you know, ASO did that too, the parent company of Tour de France. I tried for years to reach out to them on email, messaging, through calling, everything. They wouldn't respond at all. On one hand, that really stoked the fires for me to want to create cha change even more. But to think of how much more effective and quicker and easier it would have been if they just responded in some capacity, we could have gotten this done a long time ago. <laughs> so what were the key things that you and your team of these amazing women did to get a women's tour to France? Because I, I imagine it was quite difficult. Mm, yeah, I would say that the number one thing that we did was to organize step one, you know, and that happened when I was interviewing Marianne and Emma and also Chrissy Wellington. All, when I was interviewing them for Half the Road, I asked Every interviewee, you know, do you want to race the Tour de France? Do you think we need to have one? And every single woman said yes, except for Chrissy being a triathlete. Well, she didn't technically, you know, want to ride in the Tour de France because she wasn't a cyclist. She absolutely supported. Yes, of course, there should be one for the professional women. Right. So um, having all of these people say yes, yes, yes. It kind of turned the light on for me that, of course, it makes sense that if we band together, our voices will be heard louder than just these individual attempts that have produced nothing, you know? So that's when the idea of forming this group came together. And then the next step was, okay, now that we are a collective team, we need to sit down, write a mission statement, a website, a manifesto. We knew that it wasn't going to be enough to ask ASO to create a women's race. What we wanted to do was to sit down with them and help make this race happen, create it with them. And then also we knew at that point too, that change.org. And by the way, I'm, I'm now back in 2013. Yeah. 2013 was the year that we created the petition on change.org to, uh, AS, to ASO to get it to the directors of the Tour de France. And what was amazing back then too, was that change.org had only been around for a few years um, it was a little bit harder to sign up back then to support a petition. You know, you had to enter in a lot of details and emails and all this other stuff. Now it's a lot easier. You can pretty much just hit click. <laughs> but back then it was it was a little bit tougher. And when we launched this petition, we had just about 100,000 signatures that came through. And we were one of Change.org's most successful petitions of 2013. So this goes to show that it was all the planning that went into the mission of what we wanted to do. It wasn't just launching a petition saying, hey, 
hey, ASO, you should do this. It was about, nope, this is what we want to do. And we want to sit down and make this happen with you. So, you know, those are some of the the tools that we we used to initiate this level of change. I hope I haven't gotten too off topic. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'd like to just give the audience, the listener, just some takeaways. If they're thinking to themselves, wow, I had no idea that inequity existed in you know, mm-hmm. women's cycling, and I really want to get involved somehow, like, what are some things that I can do? I love that question. That's one of my favorites, because everybody can truly play an effective part. If you are on social media, if that's something that you love to, to engage with, the best thing that you can do is call out where this change needs to happen, whether it's cycling, or whether, for example, in medicine, doctor, male doctors are still making higher wage than female doctors, right? And you think to yourself, is that really possible in 2021? Really? That's still going on? And it is. So we're, I'm using cycling, you know, for my, for my path, but every single area, there are so many areas where we can just turn over these rocks of inequity and see what slithers out beneath and then use that in terms of creating change. If you're comfortable on social media, talk about it but not in an angry way. Talk about it in a, can you believe this is happening? And then add what you believe the the right solutions are. Because if we're just um, spreading around the broken parts and not focusing on how to fix it, then it's not as helpful. Yeah, it's just complaining. Um, It's just complaining. Exactly. There are some other things, Um, whether or not you are proficient or enjoy social media, one of the most effective things that you can do is reach out to your Congress people or your senators, and you can find, you can have a direct conversation these days with, with these lawmakers who are in your neck of the woods and see what they're doing. And if they're not doing anything, then maybe that's your perfect opening to create a team. So if you choose to go into the realms of activism, the number one thing I have to say, which is apparent from this conversation, create a team. I personally think uh, three to four like-minded people is a great number because you can have more members, but then you have a lot of voices happening all at once. Sometimes it's easier to keep, you know, a smaller nucleus of people, but then at different stages, you open that up to larger auxiliary members. But a lot of good can come from working with two or three people that are also just as passionate as you are. Start asking those questions, you know, to your friends, to followers. Say, hey, this is how I feel about this. Does anybody else feel this way? Does anybody else want to see this change? Really starting small and asking those questions can open some pretty big gateways. So as they say, teamwork makes the dream work, you know, and it's it's true. I love, I've always loved that saying, as silly as it might be. But um, change comes when we band together. That it happens a lot faster. And then again, my my other biggest tip is remember that if you don't feel quote unquote strong enough, because you might not feel as comfortable putting yourself out there, know that you probably have a skill set that is just as equally important. Maybe you're great at organizing people. Maybe you're great at writing first drafts. Maybe you have the ability to sit down and make phone calls and be that person, you know, within the team. There are so many roles that you can play. So I just want to make sure that people know that all of our different personalities can meld together in a really fantastic way to make change happen. So my question is, People might make a team and they might say, "Okay, we're ready to make change. But where does the change need to occur? Is it in the media? Is it Ah. the the companies that are paying the athletes? Is it like there's all these different areas that need change. So like where should people apply the energy? Great question. And the answer is all of the above. So one of the things that you want to do is you want to start at the top. I firmly believe that change has to come from the top down. Okay, because if you're just fighting the middlemen in between the, the media is not going to pay attention and the public is not going to pay attention. So, you know, that is why we went after the Tour de France, because that is the one cycling event that just about the whole world knows, even if they have zero interest or knowledge in cycling. You know, nine out of 10 people can say, oh, Tour de France, that's a bike race in France. <laughs> they know, right? So for anybody who wants to affect change, 
go to your proverbial tour de France, whatever it is in that area and start there. The other thing is we talked about the media, get the media on board, let them know what you're working on, what you're doing so that they can be your allies when it comes time to call out the, uh, the powers that be, you know, that's a very important part of the journey. And also, you know, when we talk about this idea of the Tour de France, the, the big, you know, people who are at the top, this can also be used at a local level. If you have something going on that's not right in your city or your town, then you go to whoever's at the top of your governing board. Maybe it's your mayor, maybe it's your senator, depending on what level it is, and, and start at whatever it is that's at the top for your area. So that matters. And I mean, think about the alternative if I had gone looking to create change for women cycling at the Arizona State Criterium Championships, there's nothing wrong with that. That would have been fine, but it would have had a much smaller turnout than going for, you know, change at the very top. So, you know, just kind of think those things through and, and do what's most comfortable for you. But don't be afraid to take it to the highest level because that's where things are going to happen. And I have one more question along those lines. I've had people come to me or race promoters actually coming to me saying, look, we want to offer, you know, equal payout for women, but we do that and the women don't show up. So what are we supposed to do? Mm, interesting. Okay. So there are a couple different things. One is that when a race is doing something right, that needs to be promoted. You know, the race needs to do that too. The race needs to step up and say, at long last, we are finally creating a, uh, you know, a race that's equal for men and women. They need to be as proactive. And in terms of if women don't show up, they need to take a good hard look in the mirror. Have they promoted the race actively? Not just about the, the fact that they're going to pay both sides equally, but have they promoted the race? Have they gotten it out there? Are they offering any assistance to help women who are struggling to get to that race. You know, there, there are multiple hats that are worn with that type of um, excuse, you know, of like, oh, the women aren't showing up. The women need to know about it and it needs to be, you know, exposed to them. And then on the other side of that too, absolutely, the women do have to do their, their part. Did they not show up because it conflicted with another race? Did it not show up because it was something that they hadn't heard about? You know, there are a lot of factors there. So to check all those boxes and then, you know, for both sides to take some accountability. And we have to remember, too, that there are some areas in the sport where um, the women's side is still growing. So how many women are not showing up? Is it that one or two aren't? Is it, you know, what are the numbers that are involved? And to really take a closer look and make sure that these promoters are on board with the long game. Because I think we all know too, if you're talking about an equal prize money thing that's happening, but these race promoters just put this into effect and the race is two weeks away and no one shows up, <laughs> you know, that's not a, that's not enough time for the most elite level cyclists to know and, and do something about that. So timing is another huge element of, of what's really going to make something effective you know, push it out there early and start promoting and remember the long game. You know, it might not be this year that change happens, but you keep on it and you're going to create the right pathway for the future. And that's so important to remember. Well, thanks for all those really actionable takeaways for people who want to help inspire change, maybe on the large scale or even in their local community. Oh, I'm I am so happy to be here with you talking about all of these aspects, Sonia. It means a lot. You are just such a joy to speak with. And Thanks. what you've done in the sport is awesome. And your podcasts are fantastic. So where can, th thanks for that. And where can people find your, <laughs> find your book and find more about you? Because you have like your, you have so many different projects going on. You have your foundation. You have like, it's just amazing all the things you're doing. So where can people find all of this? Well, thank you. That's, that's so kind of you. Um, okay, so the short answer is, I've got a website, Catherine Bertine, I'll spell it K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-B-E-R-T-I-N-E.com. And that'll link you to the different projects that I have going on. And the big one right now is, is Stand, a memoir on activism, a manual for progress, what really happens when we stand on the front lines of change. And that is out now in February. 
that will tell the whole journey of, of what's really happened, you know, for me behind the scenes and on the front lines. And, uh, you know, it's out there feeling vulnerable. I'm excited about it, but you can find that on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Noble and you can also call your local bookseller and you can order it from, from your local, your local bookstore. So there's an option there for everybody in terms of how they shop. <laughs> and I'm on social media at Catherine Bertine. I'll pop up in, in whatever it is you're following. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And yeah, you just gave us a little glimpse of what's in your book. And I'm sure people are really interested to learn more. So thank you again for showing up for everybody, for dedicating your life to this and for making huge changes and inspiring others to do so as well. I am honored. Thank you so much, Sonia. I hope you enjoyed that awesome episode with Catherine Bertine. Make sure that you check her out online and pick up one of her books. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And I also have a weekly newsletter at sonyalooney.com newsletter where I send out my best motivation and mindset tips every single week. I do research for one short article. I include the podcast of the week and I leave a question for you to ponder to maybe get to know yourself a little bit better. And you can sign up at sonyalooney.com newsletter. I love you guys. And I am so glad that you are here. I am with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.